0: Hopefully my voice will make it through. Um, I think you come to a passage like this, right? Let's before we dive into it, let's just let's just start with the obvious question, right? What do I do with this? I think it's difficult, because I, I believe that every word in the Word of God is inspired, and there's a reason why every word within it's there. And that kind of leaves me with a bit of a problem how do you make sense of it right what do you do with a load of detail that doesn't have a really obvious apparent purpose which jumps out and I think the more I've looked at the passage and it's not straightforward but the more I've looked at it I've become convinced that these chapters were writing about events which happened two and a half thousand years ago But while writing about stuff two and a half thousand years ago, actually talk to us, talk to us now, about how God deals with us and what it's like to actually live a Christian life. And hopefully we can just draw that together. Um, And I think, but before we do, you see, you can't just dive straight into a passage like this and just look at verses. You have to think about it first, right? And there's three things we really want to have in our mind. We want to have in mind, firstly, how the Bible works. Secondly, how our lives work. And thirdly, what our relationship with God looks like. And... There's two bits of context with that in mind that I want to just talk about first, which I think help to set the scene and make some kind of sense of it. Context number one. God is less concerned about how much we know about him and more concerned about our relationship with him. And therefore his Bible is written accordingly. And if you don't believe that, you've got a real difficulty in trying to interpret a passage like this. You see, these, these chapters don't give us a really easy way of producing a concise list of things to know about God. It doesn't state a whole load of things to know about God. But rather, what they do is they show us how He relates to His people. And by understanding this, we can, we can learn better how we relate to Him. And I kind of think that's how life works, right? And apologies, Hannah. Um, I don't mean to embarrass you now. But when I started going out with Hannah, you know, you think this is narrative, right? This is story. This is telling you about how God deals with people. When I go out with Hannah, right, for the first time, I'm developing a narrative, a story together. You know, we hang out together, go for meals together, get to know each other, you know, by some miracle. End up landing somewhere. Um, she didn't have to tell me. She was caring, loving, or gentle. Over time, I got to see it. right? It wasn't that she just... She didn't give me a list and go, this is everything you need to know about. me. rather, we spent time together and learnt about each other, right? And I didn't have to tell her that I was charming, engaging, and witty. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure why she went for me, actually, but we'll, we'll... Well, that's outside the context of these two chapters, so we'll press on. Um, but it's the same here, right? It's the same concept. The Bible uses narrative. It uses story, which is all we do in our lives, right? We're living narratives. We're living stories. The Bible's doing the same thing to tell us about who God is and how he relates to us. Right. Hold that one. Number two. It's a bit more nuanced, this one. Just think again about me going out with Hannah. Well, you might not want to think about that, but just conceptually think about it, right? Or any relationship. The conversations, right? When you, when you get in a relationship with someone, the conversations with them that you think are insignificant, you know, those moments you think you talk about nothing, you think they don't matter, right? They're the moments at which you talk about everything, right? I don't know if you relate to me in that. You get it that you think that what happens in life is that there's a series of big events, and you look back and you think, everything that's happening in my life is these big events, right? I don't know, I do my GCSEs, or like, go to college, I do my degree, I pick a uni, change churches, or, I don't know, get a job. Whatever it is I end up doing, right, these are the big events, right? That's not life, right? Life is everything that happens in between, it's the little things. You know, it's laughing with friends over a cup of tea, right? The quiet time where you get to see God's love afresh. It's the lunchtime walk with your partner. It's having a great time with your kids. All these things make up life. And in the same way, when we come to chapters like these, right, they seem insignificant to the grand salvation story because they don't even really fit. Because the truth is they've got a load of failure and frustration in them, which we'll come to, which doesn't really seem to fit with the narrative at all. And yet, in these seemingly insignificant chapters, we actually find a whole load of things about God. In my notes have said everything about God, and maybe that's not true, but you, you get that sense if you learn, you learn about someone in the insignificant moments. And just as joy, the joy of life is often hidden behind a chat over coffee, so God and how we relate to him is hidden away in the lists and the seemingly innocuous details of these chapters which we will dig through. So to recap, two things to keep in mind, please. One, the chapters show us about God rather than tell us about him. And secondly, these chapters seem insignificant, but really they are telling us something very important. Okay, so let me, let me dig in. Point number one is that we need to learn that obedience to God is no fairy tale. So, to give a bit of context, right, and I'm not going to do much context in terms of Nehemiah because everyone who's done it has already done that right. But the point we're at in Nehemiah is the city walls have finally been rebuilt, and you've got a problem. You've got to try and repopulate the city, right? So, you've got the city walls rebuilt, but the actual inside of the city isn't rebuilt. And this is all about what happens at that point. So, how do you repopulate the city? What are the provisions for worship? What are the provisions for obedience to God? How did the people as a whole actually get back into that city? How do they relate to God? And how do they progress from this point? But as we go through these chapters, and it's kind of, in some ways, it's hidden when you read it, like I did, where you just read, read in a list of names. But as you go through them, what you actually see in the details are lots of hints. There's hints that everything isn't quite as it should be. And you see that very, right at the very start. Um, you can see that lots were taken to get people back into the city. Now, I don't quite know what the analogy of taking a lot is, right, to try and get someone to do something. But in my head, it's a bit like you're in work and you're doing a voluntary redundancy round. You don't get enough people out of a voluntary redundancy, so you end up doing a compulsory redundancy where you end up picking people. There's there's a sense I think here, and you you get that where it talks about you know the praise and the people are willing to return. It wasn't it wasn't a straightforward thing, right? And you have to question why was it that they had to take lots to get people one in ten to go back to the city and. And you can actually see that if you look back. I'll read this for you, but it's in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. It says this. Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. You see, what we've got here, picture right, the city the city inside not rebuilt, the walls are rebuilt it's a bit like, I was thinking what's it like maybe there's not a good analogy right 1970's Albert Dock, the Albert Dock was redeveloped in 1982, if you live living in 1970 and your three bed and someone said go and live in the Albert Dock when it's completely empty and derelict you wouldn't want to right, you wouldn't want to for two reasons, one it's derelict and two it's probably not very safe and you've got the same things going on here and you see that again um, it's not just that it's not an attractive place to live but you know the gates are bolted shut at night, and there's a load of guards to protect it. Well, you don't you don't do that unless there's a security issue, right? Um, and it seems that security issues in this city is something which just comes through the whole of a chapter. Now, it gets lost some ways in, in the detail, but I'll just give you a few hint, a few versions. So, chapter eleven, um, verse six, four. It refers to four hundred sixty-eight valiant men in the city. Verse eight, nine hundred twenty-eight men of valor. A further hundred twenty-eight men of valor in verse fourteen and a further 172 gatekeepers stationed in the city in verse 19. And then we look at verse 18, for example, and there's only 284 Levites. So we've got, you know, very rough mass, right? 1,524 people who are mentioned who are protecting the city, and it mentions 284 Levites looking after the temple. So what do you do with that, right? Why would God have more people protecting the city than doing temple worship? I think what's going on here is that obedience to God in this life before Jesus is not going to be ideal. There's nothing great about living in a derelict city, right? And the huge numbers of people who are prepared to defend the city leaves us, in no doubt, it wasn't a fairy tale for them, right? You see it again in verse 2, the people are blessed who willingly live in Jerusalem. You know, You don't willingly bless people who go live in Bel Air or Beverly Hills, do you? When you have to ask for willing volunteers, you know it's going to be tough, right? And, you know, there's, you you see again, actually, even in verse 30, if you look, the people, when they're returning to the towns around, you know, some of them, they don't even, they didn't even actually get to live in their original houses. They're camping because their houses have been taken, they've been displaced by the exile. And, the whole, the whole chapter is just hints about things not being ideal. And yet, I guess I want to say, isn't that our experience of a Christian life? I think, you know, we often talk about struggles with sin, obedience, difficulties following Christ. But, I don't know, sometimes it feels like the very circumstances of our lives don't, uh, don't seem to be optimised for the Christian life at all. It's not just, you know, it's not just that I'm very obedient. It's that the very circumstances which I live in just feel really difficult. And I wish if they were different, it would be much easier for me to be obedient. Do you not find yourself thinking if I worked fewer hours, I could give more time to church? If I had a bit more money, I'd be less stressed. If I, if I met the right person, I'd be more content. If I had a bigger kitchen, I could do more socialising. If I had better relationships at work, I could evangelise more. The list goes on, right? There's no... We've all got our own list of things. I don't want to, y- you'll all have your own list, right? And I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to minimize it for me. I don't want to minimize it for any of you. But I do, I do want to say, I think these chapters in Nehemiah is clear, right? God puts us in a set of circumstances which may not seem ideal for our Christian lives, but they are the circumstances He's chosen for us. It's not entirely clear why it was in God's plan to need so many valiant people to defend a city, right? It's not clear how hard it would have been to live in a derelict city. But it was God's plan. It certainly wasn't a forgotten moment of history, was it? This wasn't an accident. God hadn't forgotten about them. He's written it down. It's here. And he's written down the details. He's not leaving it to chance that it was difficult. It says here it's difficult. another thing, it wasn't explained right it doesn't say why God put them in those circumstances say. doesn't say it doesn't give it, there's no reason I can see here which says this is why it had to be so hard you know, God could have defeated all their enemies and he didn't need any guards right? he could have rebuilt the city in a flash it's the same for us today, right? We're not in ideal circumstances. We're we're certainly not in the circumstances we choose to live our lives, to live our Christian lives. But we are in the circumstances that God has given us. And again, to us, he doesn't explain why. He doesn't say why we're facing the problems we're facing. And I can't explain to you either. But it's not an accident, right? It's not an accident, the circumstances we face. God's not forgotten you. God chose to write down in the Bible in these two chapters all the details of a messy situation to put these people in to say that the gospel is not you know, in my head I sometimes think the gospel's like a snow plow where I've got all these troubles and I try and pray to God to remove all these troubles out of my way so I can be more obedient to him but actually that's not, that's not what it is, is it? It's not what these chapters refer to. They talk about a relationship with our Father through the difficulties and through the limitations that we face and as we, as we look over these chapters, the, the more themes develop, right? And we see that actually the obedience is worth it. The more we look at it, we see that. You know, do you, do you question, right? So when I'm reading out that list of names and I'm struggling over them, it's difficult when you're preparing a sermon like this because you're thinking, what do these names mean, right? Most of his names don't actually add very much meaning or interpretation to what's going on. And you know, even when this was written, right, within 200 years, most of people would be forgotten because that's just the way, isn't it? And yet they're not, are they, right? They're not forgotten because God hasn't forgotten them. He's not forgotten the down there, right? And they may not have all achieved great things and they may not have all been very significant people, but they were significant to God, right? I think. I think we need to say, don't we, that we're not insignificant to God either. We may be insignificant, but we're not insignificant to God. You know, you may feel like these people, your circumstances are holding you back and that you don't achieve very much for the gospel. But God loves you. He knows your limitations. And he knows the difficulty of your circumstances. And he in no way promises to take them away. But just as he's recorded the names here, so you are significant to him not because of what you could achieve in a different set of circumstances or what you could have done if life had worked out differently it's not about if I made a whole load of different set of choices and ended up in different circumstances this is what I could do for God it's not if I was more intelligent if I was more confident if I was more clever if I was in a different place if only I'd gone abroad blah 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 it's not that You're significant to God as you are, in the circumstances you face now. And rather than just hoping for change of circumstances, we need to take joy in knowing God as we are in all the difficulties that we face. And I'll move on to my second point, which is shorter, right? And it's just linking straight in. Even though life's not a fairy tale, we should still be joyful look and it, this is kind of a bit how this passage divides up right it goes through how difficult it is and then it starts talking about joy so we see a load of references to joy as we move through the passage and if you look at 1227 uh, there's a dedication of gladness for thanksgiving the singing verse 28 refers to singers coming from different regions in verse 31 two choirs were appointed and verse th- from verses 32 to 42 we hear in great detail all the arrangements that are made uh, for the people to rejoice and praise God now, it's easy at this point to become sceptical. So, you know, thinking these people have been coerced into reluctant praise, a bit like Josh and Evan in the morning when I ask you to stand up and sing, and you're not sure if you really want to. I, don't think, I think I've lost them. You um, it, it feel like that, right? But actually, we've got verse 43 tells us it's not like that at all, right? So we look and it says this. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I'm on my final page, by the way, so you can all see me where we're up to. We're nearly there. Look, in Ezra after the temple rebuild and there was mixed emotions, right? So in Ezra what happened was they were rebuilding the temple and there was mixed emotions. There was weeping and joy at the same time. It says in Ezra you couldn't actually tell. The noise was heard for miles around but you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't distinguish it. Indistinguishable, right? You had, the, you had the young people who had never seen anything better than this temple. who were joyful. And you had the people who knew in some ways knew better, right? They'd seen the original temple. They were crying because they thought actually this isn't isn't anywhere near a fulfillment of God's promises. right that's what happened in Ezra here in Nehemiah we've got the rebuilding of the walls and we've got a load of difficulties including the derelict city right? and yet we don't have we don't have weeping and joy it's not, there's nothing indistinguishable about Salnea. we only have joy right why is that similar circumstances different response How can the people be so joyful when actually they're surrounded by frustration, difficulty, and lack of... You know, they're not seeing the fulfillment of God's promises here. They're seeing the cities are just a mere shadow of what it was previously. And I think... I think this is difficult, right? But I think this passage is teaching us a hard lesson, one I've not learnt myself, but a hard lesson about the very nature of joy in the gospel. You see, I think the people... They weren't thinking about what God hadn't done or what he could do. They were just grateful for what he had done. I don't think they were thinking, how can my circumstances be different? You know, at the moment they're rejoicing. They're not thinking, how can my circumstances be different? They were joyful for what God had done. They are joyful to de- dedicate the wall right. To be part of the people working out God's plan. You know that's that's a lesson I need to learn, right? I, I imagine we all need to learn it to agree to a lesser extent. Gospel joy is not about better circumstances. I wish it was. I wish it was, but it's not. It's about it's about being joyful for what God has done. However hard those circumstances were in are look and think about where this is in gospel history right we have, we have a great deal more to be joyful for than these people did we live the other side of Jesus we know where the story ends we know that Jesus saved us we know that he's living in our hearts by his Holy Spirit and we've grown to be more like him we know that he has a seat saved for us in the eternal kingdom of paradise we know that one day we'll see him I mean, really, how much more could we ask for? You know, I pray for myself, I pray for you guys here, that going forward, I, you, would be less concerned about the difficulties we face. And instead, reflect on everything that Jesus has done for us. Through Jesus. And that that would be a huge source of joy for us. As I finish, you know, just just remember God... God doesn't want us to just know about Him. There won't be a theo- th- theo- th- praise the Lord. There won't be a theological quiz in heaven, right, where everyone's pitted against each other. God wants us to know Him. He wants us to love Him. He wants us to be in a relationship with Him. He wants us to pour our hearts to, out to Him and to be joyful as we remember everything He's done and He's doing, and everything He will do.